Hi everyone, this is Kat. Just with a note before we begin, this episode includes an unusual amount of background noise. At various points you're going to hear barking poodles, traffic sounds, a vacuum cleaner, and one of Phoebe's children having a honestly pretty cute meltdown. We apologize for these interruptions, we hope they don't ruin the auditory experience, and we thank you as always for listening to Feminine Chaos. This is Kat. And this is Phoebe. Welcome to Feminine Chaos. Welcome, welcome. Uh, Phoebe, I, I have some bad news. Oh, no. You have not completed your mutual respect training for this podcast. And, you know, to ensure that we're in compliance with diversity standards, I'm going to need to give you a multiple choice quiz right now. Okay. Okay. This is a hypothetical question, right? So, mm-hmm. so listen carefully. Chad has a really diverse team, but he has noticed some cliques forming. People who share the same religion tend to stick together. When Chad asked one of his employees why that is, they said it's not done out of malice. They're just afraid of doing or saying something that could offend someone's religion or beliefs. Which one of these actions should Chad not do? One, nothing. If someone does or says something that offends another's religion, it may result in a harassment or discrimination complaint. The team is working well, so that's the main thing. Two, arrange a lunchtime potluck and have everyone bring in a dish to share with the team that is a staple in their country or culture. (laughs) Or, arrange to get the team together so they can learn about each other's religions and cultures. In particular, they can discuss anything that is sacred or offensive to their beliefs. So is there a D? No. Can I add a D? Sure. I assume the option is pick whichever religions you're less in favor of and execute everybody who is a member of that group because it, they're, a, you know, a heathen or a whatever, whatever the word is, infidel. Or- the answer is none of the above. Actually, what you're supposed to do is gather together all of these employees and sacrifice them to the demon Baal, who is your one true god. Uh, we've been over this. I thought so. Okay. Um, I would guess, okay, I would guess that the potluck idea would be not wise because if these are a bunch of different religions, once you have even just Judaism or Islam involved, and it could, there could be others as well, the dietary requirements, assuming these are religious people, would be such that there probably wouldn't be a whole lot of things they could all eat in common or assume they could all eat in common. Yeah, see, you know, here's what's great about your answer is that this is how a normal person thinks about being sensitive to other people's religions and ethnic backgrounds and so on. But in fact, the wrong answer, the one thing that you're definitely not supposed to do is leave your team alone um, because they're working fine together and there's really no need to introduce like religion or religious personal backgrounds into the workplace. That's the thing that you're not allowed to do. You're not allowed to just leave it so the one thing that would make sense right right exactly because i was going to say that none of them made sense but that the potluck one made sense the least perhaps hmm. yes yeah you know but between that and the idea where you know you get you get your team together and you're like all right everyone tell me about what's most offensive to your religion and <laughs> um and suddenly 
<laughs> you have civil warfare going on in your office. Are we going to have a potluck then where where I tell you everything that offends me while serving you some kind of mediocre homemade food? Yeah, is it the mediocre homemade food that your that your child is screaming about in the background? Yeah, they are <laughs> um they are en route to a splash pad, but it sounds like they're not there yet. Um <laughs> It's all good, you know, for, you know, for those unaware, this is a raw, uncut, like ripped from real life podcast. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I always was wondering when that was going to start on the podcast. This is so much cuter than my dog barking. So anyway, so true story, I actually pulled this question for you about um, sacrificing your coworkers to the demon ball from an actual diversity training that I just did for the nameless company that I work for. And um, it's one of these things where, you know, you have to watch a series of videos and then take a quiz. And I have to say, I swear to God, these things are designed by people who have never had a normal conversation or like an intimate friendship in their entire entire life. And the goal is to make everyone who takes it as awkward as they are. Because if you actually interacted with people as instructed by one of these modules, you would come off as basically like an extremely racist robot. And I guess that's what people like. There's a certain type of advice. And I would say this would be for like DEI type advice. It can be in certain advice columns. It's very often an advice given to small children that just does not make any sense as something that you could actually follow, like with actual people. So something like, you know, tell somebody that that hurt your feelings. And like, I think for a while, children will like obey this, but they don't quite understand what they're saying. So they just say that hurt my feelings to say that they're angry, you know, but like, there's just a way that like, you don't have middle schoolers saying to each other that hurt my feelings and have it like go anywhere, at least historically. Um, But yeah, like where there's some sort of protocol you're supposed to follow that just nobody would actually ever follow because it's just not how people talk. Yeah. So I guess my question is now that we've we've talked about this, should I go ahead and talk about the thing that is related to it and then we'll we'll do conference Karen second? Yes. Okay. And I'm a complete, complete innocent to this because um, I am so busy with my life of throwing offensive potlucks in the name of anti-offensiveness that I have not caught up in this story. So Kat, tell me what this, what's this about? Right. You're so busy doing the work of anti-racism offline that you can't keep track of all the other people doing anti-racism offline and failing miserably at it. So yeah, um, a little nice bit of kismet as I was busy being irritated at diversity trainings in a personal way, I came across this really interesting thread from the equity director at a company called Welcome. Uh, Welcome is a nonprofit charitable trust based in the United Kingdom. Not something Lee Stein created in a novel. No, but it, honestly, it, it it's everything about this is so close to satire that it's actually a little eerie. So welcome, just if in case you're wondering, they are a charitable trust. They quote this from their website, improves health for everyone by funding research, leading policy and advocacy campaigns and building global partnerships. They're also, they have a museum of some sort. I don't really totally understand. They seem to have like a lot of hands and a lot of pies. But what you really need to know is that In 2020, Welcome was one of the many, many organizations that was swept up in the great anti-racist reckoning that followed the death of George Floyd. Even though Welcome is 
in the UK. They nevertheless wanted to get involved, apparently were very affected. So as all of these organizations came out and basically said, we're going to do better, you know, we're complicit in racism, we're going to do better. Welcome was one of them. Uh, they hired a diversity firm, they announced an entire anti-racist initiative. And two years later, Welcome made another announcement, and this was in the tweet that I encountered today. It says, a new report indicates Welcome Trust is an institutionally racist organization in spite of recent efforts to become anti-racist. There has been limited progress in our efforts to become anti-racist as both a funder and employer. Womp womp. <laughs> so the, I, I do think it's interesting. You, you don't often see exactly what happens where companies like taking all these steps to change things supposedly or at least throwing a great deal of money at an organization that promises to help them change things in this case they gave all this money to an organization to help them become anti-racist and two years later that same organization believes that they need to continue giving them even more money to become more anti-racist probably not a huge surprise there so it sounds a little like the therapy thing right like if somebody like is a certain type of therapy where like it would be the therapist's incentive to say like, no, actually, you need to see me every day for an hour forever. Yes, exactly. You know, it's, it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I do think that there's, it is a little bit of a trap that once you decide to involve yourself in one of these relationships with uh, an organization that has a great incentive to continue to find things wrong with you, um, you're, you're kind of in for life unless you can summon the strength to make a break for it. Um, but what's also interesting to me is Welcome released a report that they made public about how unsuccessful all of their efforts to combat racism have been. And it kind of demonstrates how DEI as it exists in the form of, of the programs implemented by these firms basically makes everything worse. You know, you bring one of these firms in that tells your employees and trains them to think about and obsess over and especially talk about at work, talk about race all the time and use it as their primary lens for everything. And the result is so much awkwardness and so much weirdness. Welcome basically informed all of its employees that it was now part of their job to engage in anti-racist practice, right? But they didn't really explain to them how they were supposed to do that. And so these very well-intentioned people who have no particular clue how it is they're supposed to be doing this, they only know that they're supposed to be doing it, decided to implement what was basically like a weekly anti-racist show and tell. Um, so the, this is a testimony from one of the people in this report who's anonymized. So, you know, these are all anonymous quotes. Uh, it says, within my team, this definitely been quite high on our agenda. So we have a call, a team meeting every week. And on that agenda, we have anything we may have watched to educate us. All kinds of things that have happened in the media or news or external or within the team to try to educate everybody within the team that's going on. Certainly as a team, we are hopefully doing it. Well, I think we can always do more, but I think we're educating ourselves with what are the issues. Um, so I, you know, That's I really know. funny. I'm sorry. Yeah. Right. I mean, can you imagine, you know, you're going, you have a job to do, but also every single week you have to go on a, on a Zoom call or go into a room and be like, what did you do to be anti-racist this weekend? I don't even know where to begin because I have like a lot of questions about this. I mean, it's interesting that like at the very moment when sort of 
relationships, like romantic relationships forming at work, even among people who have no sort of power relationship at all, like even just coworkers is like very frowned upon, you know, people are supposed to be so intimate in this other way where they talk about like their identity based stuff, whatever it may be at work. Yes. And, and trauma, especially, mm-hmm, you know, that you're mm-hmm. supposed to talk openly about your trauma. Um, yeah. And I mean, some of this stuff, this was another one of my favorites. Um, a woman who had left the company, who I, I'm not sure if she was a member of the equity team or if she was in another capacity, but this was an example she cited of, of experiencing racism at the company. She said, My manager asked me if I had experienced tokenism in my career, which implied that I may have got some career opportunities because of my identity as a woman of color rather than because of my skills and experience. So basically, you're encouraging your employees to think about race all the time, to talk about race all the time. So here's a guy saying, have you experienced racism in your career? And she's like, that's racist that you asked me that. (laughs) Well, so I wonder if at the root of all of this is perhaps this idea that it's a microaggression to say, I don't see race, you know, like this whole idea that race not mattering is itself a racist goal, a racist concept, you know, um, and I think in a very narrow sense, that can be true in a very, very specific sense. Like if somebody is complaining about something they dealt with that was racist and the person they're talking to responds and says, no, no, I don't see race, then fine. But like, Obviously, there are, you know, many more sort of day to day situations where not seeing <laughs> identity characteristics and just not acknowledging that not doing anything to do with them is the more polite thing, you know, and it's just not not just polite, but efficient if you're all dealing with some kind of task unrelated to who you all are when not at work, you know. Yes. And I mean, and that's sort of, it's been essential to team cohesion for a very long time is that, you know, you are working towards a shared goal and you're working towards it irrespective of whatever personal differences you may come into the office with. And when I say personal differences, I don't mean like petty beefs. I just mean like, you know, that you are all coming from different backgrounds, but you can bond over this one thing that you all share. Well, right. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I think that might be kind of like conceptually what's at the root of this here is this idea that not talking about stuff because like like how we uh started the podcast right like the question the multiple choice question you asked me it's very much um that like the idea that it is like nothing is worse than something being the default because that seems to be what i also find interesting about this um and it's coming back to me now after like a little bit of a couple nights of no sleep it takes a second but um the whole like there's a way that a lot of the kind of um cancel cancellation uh stories have at their root somebody trying to act anti-racist and failing so i'm thinking obviously of like the justine sacco um tweet of where she said that like she was going to africa she was going to get aids no just kidding because she's white and it was meant to be like a joke it sounds like on her own sort of white privilege right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i think that you see at the root of a lot of um sort of like intentionally sorry sort of like awkwardly put attempts at anti-racism or you know somebody casts 
or creates a character of color in some fictional world and then that's problematic or whatever it is, you know, or doesn't so as not to offend. But I think more often it's that somebody tries to reach out in a way and then it backfires, right? Like I think a lot of um, what's sort of interesting kind of self-fulfilling also about all of this is how, yeah, these things always do sort of um, the attempts at anti-racism lend themselves to things that either get sort of maliciously called out as racist or that genuinely are just offensive and yeah not great yeah it leads to a lot of weirdness and a lot of awkwardness i mean the other thing too is this it's a real catch-22 where you're supposed to be consciously thinking about race um, and about diversity all the time especially in hiring but once somebody is hired you are not allowed ever to mention or suggest in any way that diversity is the reason they were hired and I mean, it just creates this this terrible tension and this terrible pressure on people. You know, you're telling them you have to think about this. You have to do this. You may never admit that you thought about it or did it. That is true. That is another weirdness to it. I mean, the thinking about it all the time, the other aspect that this is making me think of all the time is just it leads to this myth that anybody who's a member of any identity group that's at all disfavored in society truly spends no time thinking of anything but their own oppression, right? Which, first of all, if true, would make it very understandable why someone wouldn't want to hire them, right? Because they're all they're going to be thinking about is their own specific story and why, you know, the world is stacked against them, which isn't a very appealing quality. But it's also just not true. It's not how people are, you know, in, in the world. Um, there are like three of them and they're very loud on Twitter, but it's not, you know, how most people are. Yeah. And this is actually also an aspect of this report that some of the employees who are from marginalized backgrounds are basically like, ever since this anti-racist initiative was implemented, I am being called into affinity groups and meetings and asked to like do all of this work to help the company become less racist. Like, I'm this is not my job. I don't want to do this. This is like a huge waste of my time and a huge imposition. Please leave me alone. Um, so yeah, I, I just, I, I, I'm fascinated by how badly this backfired. So uh, what's the state of it now? Well, you know, they're going to create even more anti-racist initiatives. And some of this stuff is interesting. You know, in one case, they've decided to create a designated stream of funding that's just for people from marginalized backgrounds. And it says that they're going to target it towards researchers who are at a stage in their careers when it will be most helpful, um, beneficial to diversity for them to receive money. I think that insofar as there's such a thing as an effective intervention institutionally in favor of diversity, this is the kind of thing you want to be doing. If what you found is that you're struggling to attract talent from marginalized backgrounds to your company, then you want to do something about, you know, you want to go back far enough that you're finding at the source where they needed support that they weren't getting that you can Mm -hmm. then provide to them. So that seems like a good idea. Um, The thing that doesn't seem like such a good idea is that they've also hired uh, like a permanent executive level and they've already got some diversity folks, but they're going to add another one. You know, I mean, in my experience, all that this really does is burden the lower level employees with an enormous amount of labor because 
what they're really doing in a lot of cases is trying to achieve compliance in the form of um, safeguarding the company itself from being sued. So many of these relationships, these um, these you know diversity firm relationships, involve one very moneyed corporation paying another very moneyed corporation as a form of insurance against being sued by its own employees, and that the actual cost is dispensed to the employees in the form of yet another interminable seminar they have to take during which they're instructed on like how to behave as though they're a bunch of preschoolers. Yeah. Wow. So there's, there's a lot there. And uh, so it's like the HR thing, right? So, you know, HR in theory is, you know, people think like, oh, it's there to help me if anything happens at work, you know, you go to HR and they'll sort it out. But like, it's there to protect the company, you know, and to smooth things over. So it's not actually like a labor union, right? Like, so there's that. And it seems like some of this is functioning kind of like HR in that regard. Um, The other is that apparently, at least in academia, this is really booming, like these um, in-house diversity, equity, and inclusion type jobs. And apparently they're extremely high paid. And I can't for the life of me figure out how you would get one because I feel like it sounds like a pretty, pretty interesting gig where you just like say, you know, everybody think about your identity all the time and then you cash the check. It sounds maybe, you know, I don't think I could get such a job because I think my views are too known, but for someone out there, it's probably great. And then the other is just that this seems to really point to like, I guess this gets discussed a lot in a U.S. context, although I think it's maybe like all the more true, at least in Canada and probably in the U.K. too, where there's this kind of like assumption in the culture that like the wokeness is coming from the marginalized and that that's but when in fact it's quite the opposite and that the people who really think all of this makes sense are like not societies more downtrodden or you know, in a more upbeat way of looking at it, diverse. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very clear that all of this discussion is being driven by people who are, you know, like, as, as most people would conceive of it, they're coming from privileged backgrounds. You know, they're very educated, they've got money, they've got resources. Um, you know, these conversations are taking place at a level that just excludes most people who are genuinely suffering from oppression because of because of the medium in which they're taking place it also just seems to be like very disconnected from just like day-to-day life because i my theory here is and has long been but it keeps being um supported by real life examples is that the same forms of bigotry that existed a while ago still exist and still exist also in workplaces but that like there's just this sort of weird kind of ass covering attempt to mitigate that in these very narrow ways that are very symbolic to do with language, you know, but that like, I don't, I don't think it's doing anything. It's just, it's sort of like, it's so woke that it's annoying, but it's not actually like ever about any sort of substantive change of how anything is run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. And, and it's, that's partly because in the course of implementing these types of programs in trying to fix, you know, the racism that you that you claim is running rampant at your company. 
it's never about identifying, they're never able to, to identify what it is that they were doing, you know, that they needed to stop doing, like what they were doing that was racist. Um, and, and I think that this is kind of key because it's a real trap that I, it seems like a lot of people and a lot of companies fell into at the moment that this was sort of like the ascendant ideology. And it was, you know, it was 2020, there was this reckoning. It was a moment of great catharsis. Everyone was confessing. It was kind of like, you know, that that moment at the tent revival where everyone's on the floor rolling around and screaming like, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. And just like, I'm a sinner too. Like, we're all like, we're so racist. I'm so sorry. And then in the cold light of day, you're like, whoa, I said some really messed up shit last night, you know, but the a company can't do that. If a company has decided to come out and be like, we're racist, we're complicit, like we've realized that we're racist, people are going to expect you to make a change. And if you haven't identified something that you were actually doing that was racist, and then you instead decide like, we're going to implement anti-racism at our company, there's nothing to target. You don't know what you're doing. And so instead you just dispense this kind of these nebulous guidelines that make your employees into like awkward, anxious, crazy people around their diverse coworkers and everything gets worse. And all of the things that you could have done, you know, that would involve addressing, you know, we really could leave your employees out of it. Like if your company is perpetuating racist outcomes, if you have discriminatory hiring practices or payment practices, that's something that you fix at, like, at the institutional level. That's something that your executives take care of. You know, you implement new policies. You don't need to involve your employees in, in endless seminars about how to talk to their coworkers. Right. And while you're still presumably evaluating your employees on the basis of their actual work, thereby hurting anybody who gets really, really into that stuff. Right. Yes, exactly. I mean, the, it's amazing to see. Sorry, there's now there's a vacuum going in the background. Um, so the amazing thing is how much once this type of ideology becomes ascendant within a company and it becomes something that everybody is devoting an enormous amount of time and energy to how much it sucks time and energy away from whatever it is that the company was actually created to do people are not doing their actual work because they're you know being distracted and diverted into this type of thing all the time and if you know if they're not actively in some kind of training then they're second guessing every email they send because like what if this is taken the wrong way what if it's non-compliant um i just i think it really is i think it's really bad <laughs> to to be like super elegant about expressing myself i think it's really bad uh i'm going to have to agree with you there <laughs> and i think also just um yeah, I, I think this whole question of um, if we want to segue soon, I don't know. I, I think um, we should segue. I have a segue because it's about this sort of, but what actually happened question. There's some overlap. There's also the, um, yeah, sorry, I hear it a lot also. Sorry. You know what, I'm going to I'm gonna mute my feed and you just go ahead and um, and talk. I'm going to, I'm going to talk and talk and talk. So um the field of academic sociology has gone and basically like in real life created probably like it outdid David Lodge. It's almost as good as um, Lucky Jim. It's like the best academic novel ever. Um, I need to, if I had time, like write it up in some vaguely fictionalized way because 
it is just too much. There's a controversy in sociology that I learned about via a, a friend of feminine chaos, John Kay, had a tweet that I did not entirely agree with, so I will explain why. But anyway, but that, but I'm glad he brings everybody's attention to this because it's quite something. Um, it says, incredible, his tweet, John Kay's, the Canadian journalist, uh, John Kay's tweet, incredible game of social justice, rock, paper, scissors going on here. Privileged black scholar versus white former prisoner. This is some very high level intersectional stuff. So this is in turn pointing to um, this very, very well-known sociologist, Seamus Khan tweeted, wait, folks at ASA, that's the American Sociological Association uh, meeting. Um, this was, I guess, in LA. Okay, so fo folks at ASA had a formerly incarcerated scholar kicked out with his students there with him by raising his experiences with being incarcerated as evidence of his being a threat at a panel on incarceration. Okay, so Seamus Khan, um, Princeton professor, 18,000 followers, um, okay, a well-known person. But then this in turn is quote tweeted by Brittany Friedman, who's at Curly Professor, Curly like hair, um, on Twitter with, before we speak about things we were not present for. I was the black woman that was attacked and degraded publicly by this man who used his white adjacent privilege to overpower me and weaponize his formerly incarcerated status to claim victimhood. This is absolutely offensive. Okay, the formerly incarcerated professor had tweeted quite a bunch of tweets about how he was um, kicked out of this conference. Um, and he says, they felt threatened by me because I and my students in the session were gang involved and have been in and out of jail our whole lives. I never once got up out of my, this important, the out of, okay, my seat and assumed any, or assumed any threatening posture at all. So that the characters here, the relevant ones, are Robert Weed or Wide W I E D E, who is a I would assume tenured professor, um, an associate professor of sociology, and Brittany Friedman, who I if she's an assistant professor, be I'm a pre-tenure but tenure track professor of sociology. So, best as I can tell, what this scandal is is Brittany Friedman gave a talk at this academic conference and Robert Weed was basically obnoxious and from so I tried to piece this together from the replies and it seems that Robert Weed was just like really like annoying I just want to interject for a moment because you know having listened to the account of it as both she explained it and also as he explained it my impression was that she was giving a presentation he showed up with his gang, um, all of them through gang signs, <laughs> maybe also through objects. It was it was violent for sure. She was overpowered from both sides of this. It's extremely hyperbolic and melodramatic. What I can piece together from replies by neither of these two people. Okay, this is my best guess, having been at academic conferences and just from reading these replies, is that basically. And it's kind of a cliche at conferences like this that somebody, often a man, will say, I have more of a comment than a question and like just hold forth on their own topic and self-promote. 
Well, it sounds like basically he did that, but like a more aggressive, um, confrontational version of it, but where he was sort of self-promoting, making it all about him and his own research and maybe his own students, which is, I guess, outward looking in a way, but not really in that context. And just basically like uh, hijacked a conversation and made it all about him and just talked for too long. Like apparently he talked for seven minutes or something when he was supposed to like just say something very brief. What about the gang, though? Like, did they snap like the Jeff? I was about to say it was a musical number straight out of West Side Story. <laughs> so basically, the where I have to part ways with John Kay's assessment is I don't know anything about the background of Brittany Friedman. And, and I have no reason to think that she's currently or ever more privileged, particularly like that she's a particularly like posh member of society both of these people currently are professors, right? They're both university professors. So to call Weed a white former prisoner, I mean, he is and he isn't, right? And in all of these, well, the only thing, the, the former part, it seems like it's clear he's not currently in prison, except he's in sociologist prison, I guess, for kicked out of the sociology conference. But he's not currently incarcerated, fine. But he is a professor now. She's a professor now. If- isn't that kind of like being in prison? It's, um, you know, it's the golden handcuffs, except um, not very generally high paid golden handcuffs. But in any case, if the source of the privilege here is status as professors, they're both privileged. If, however, it's their backgrounds, well, if she was never incarcerated, then I suppose she has that over him. But who knows? I don't know her story, right? So I don't think we know that. She could be a prisoner of love. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there are handcuffs but they're for another reason oh, just, all <laughs> too silly but as for whether he's white or well white adjacent this is where it gets kind of like funny in a way and also like silly in a way or okay definitely silly so in defending himself slash self-promoting further perhaps um weed has uh i've decided he's weed weed, weed. Okay. It may not be correct, but it's funnier. So let's go with it. Thank you. Thank you. That's That was my thinking there. He has a long, I have not read it that closely, screenshotted excerpt from his book where he uh, gives his positionality statement, which is something in uh, sociology where you basically say who you are in the world. Because sociology is, is basically, you know, categorizing people on the basis of identities in the sort of academic sense of identity, not necessarily like in the identity politics sense, although there's overlap. But anyway, we're basically he's half Kurdish and half like Kurdish from Iran and half a mix of Russian and Prussian, which to me, dare I say, would suggest white. And he goes on to explain that he's, you know, like that this does that he's definitely not white, like in the book and also then in these in tweets like that he really gets in the tweets that he's not white. This is so ridiculous. And this just really reminded me a lot of the whole thing about that man repeller, Leandra Medine Cohen, the fashion blogger, who was held up as like this example of, you know, tremendous white privilege and self-flagellated for white privilege a while back when, when all the girl bosses had their downfalls. She is a, I believe, Turkish and Iranian Jew, American, but that's her background. Mm-hmm. And it was like, of course she's white. You know, everybody's like, oh, you know, white privilege, white fashion blogger, whatever. Here is somebody who is arguably whiter than Leandra Medina, but it's like, oh, of course this is not a white person. And I think this has to do with 
disciplines, as it were, like their sociology versus fashion blogging, I think enters into this a lot that like, if you're in a field where especially academia in general, even and sociology and sort of related fields, like there's definitely like, it's better to be something interesting. Whereas in fashion blogging, it's probably on the whole better not to be something interesting, you know, because that's a more sort of like, there would be more straightforward benefits pre 2020, at least, and I would assume still now to being white. In fashion blogging? Oh, gosh, I don't think so. Well, there isn't really fashion blogging anymore. It's true. The moment of fashion blogging is over, but so too is, I think, the moment in which, in any kind of rarefied circle, in which being white is really a, a benefit. It could be neutral. Oh, I don't know. Well, that, that could be a debate for another time. Yeah. But what's interesting here is like, so these two completely different accounts. So she says, and they both have a lot of reply, sort of sycophants saying, I'm so sorry this happened to you, which is fascinating, and almost like the same language. So she gets, can we just say Brittany and Robert so we don't have to worry about Brittany, their... Brittany and Robert. Okay. Brittany and Robert. We're on first name, whatever, you know. They, if they want to be called doctor and doctor, well, they have to call me doctor right back. So, you know, I'm about to perform surgery. Um, but basically, she's saying that she was bullied and oppressed on the basis of her identity. And he's saying, you got my identity wrong. And they're... But what, when it comes down to it, they were just having, it seems like a very sort of old school academic squabble over who cited who and like who should have cited who and like they disagree about their topic or whatever. This does not seem like anything actually to do with their identities at all. And so why do you think that identity must enter into it and, and not just enter into it, but become kind of the foregrounding for everything else that happened? Well, I think it has to do with that it's sociology, right? And they are literally studying, both of them, identities related to and very much like the things that they are marginalized on the basis of. So she's studying things to do with being Black. He's studying things to do with being incarcerated, it seems like. And there's a lot riding on this, the whole positionality, life as positionality statement like this. It's really, that's the framework they have for discussing everything, right? Um but it's just, it's also the framework people observing this on both teams here seem to have for discussing it. So whether you see this as Black woman scholar maligned or as former formerly incarcerated bootstraps type story, either way, you know, it's identity. And then complicating matters is it, it also seems like Robert's identity is, so he's a former, I believe, LA gang member. But he also seems to be like very into the pro-Palestinian cause. His feed is like a lot about that too. This is getting very complicated. So who is the true marginalized? That though, that is where I am very much with John Kay that this is indeed a game of social justice rock, paper, scissors. And I think that is why it's so compelling is, is that exactly that it's like, who's the actual marginalized one here? Because it seems like they are fighting over something incredibly trivial that literally only they could possibly care about about who cited who and like who you know whose work is more important or whatever like honestly who cares but the reason they get all these other people roped into it is by pretending it's a question of much bigger stakes right is this a mansplainer or is this you know a member of like the most marginalized group in society the formerly incarcerated right or you know is this some like 
snooty professor lady or is this a, a black woman, you know, capital B? Let's take this all very seriously. Gosh, I have some questions. Go for it. Are they more comments or questions? And where's your gang? Um, I, I've got the dog. That works. Yeah. Remember, I'm a member of the, uh, the doodles. <laughs> We're pretty badass. We do a lot of murders. I should hope so. Just try to think about how to, to make a joke about my dog eviscerating a lamb chop toy, which was actually genuinely upsetting to watch. I found it at the grocery store. I was like, this is so cute. And I brought it home and it was it was like witnessing a murder. Um, but this is actually my question. You know, number one, uh, I think we need to know Robert, our friend Robert. Um, what was he in prison for? Because that that probably matters, right? Yeah. Hey, I, it seems like something to do with gangs. Like he was in a gang and and got arrested is it illegal to be in a gang no I, I don't think so but i think i think he was in um whichever part of philadelphia born and raised and then had to move to his rich uncle in bel-air <laughs> i'm sorry i can't help myself <laughs> It took me a minute. It took me a minute because I've actually never seen an episode of that oh, show. No, it's actually, well, the first, the earlier seasons were ever pretty good. Yeah, so that that is definitely relevant what he was in prison for, although if he's rehabilitated, I guess you could say. Um, right. So here's my question is like, if if this is a battle to be more marginalized, is he more marginalized if he did a really bad thing that landed him in prison? Um, like, because if he killed somebody, then arguably that's intimidating and maybe maybe he's scary. You know, maybe he actually advances up the ladder of oppression by virtue of being scary. Mm. Whereas if he did something really lame, like stole a bottle of hairspray <laughs> to to do his hair real pretty because he couldn't afford it um then i think that he's more pathetic and hence more marginalized Ooh, interesting i don't know how that would rank because like you could also say that you're if you're driven the the more gruesome the crimes you're driven to by a certain type of progressive framework it's that society was so stacked against you that you simply had to you know, murder somebody in some cryptic way every week and with Swedish detectives <laughs> following you. Well, the Swedish detectives are definitely not marginalized because they're Swedish and everyone knows that those two things are mutually exclusive. But they're they're tortured quietly. Yeah, they've got darkness in their past. I think they do. I think they do. I think they have secret demons that will be revealed only um, in the penultimate episode. You've been watching a lot of Scandinavian detective shows, haven't you? Really not that many, but I, I kind of get the gist. Um, but... <laughs> okay, well, so here's here's my conclusion, all right? I'm, I'm, ready, I'm ready to weigh in. There's no discerning, based on identity alone, which one of these people is the asshole. They're going to have to settle it with a dance-off, and that's that. West Side Story style, right? Do, do. <laughs> I think they're going to have to. But then the other angle that I, I think before we wrap up this rather, I mean, I, I love all of this. Like, I, I think it's fascinating. And I, I can't wait to, if I ever try to write fiction again, start with this as inspiration, because it's just so good. Um, but so she called security, it seems like, or security was called, and she was okay with that. Officer Krupke. 
Exactly. <laughs> of course, of course. With Barnaby as backup um, for Midsummer Murders, just, you know, because you, you've got to be, um, you can't be too careful when there are angry sociologists. You need all the fictional police officers in there to keep the peace. Yes. And the one I think is really attractive from the 1980s, Miss Marples, he's there too. Gotcha. But basically, <laughs> I've lost my thought. No, <laughs> I, I think that, um, so she called the cops on him or security, whatever. So she's the Karen, right? She's the conference Karen. Um, and somebody even in a, I think, deleted or blocked, or I don't even know what it was, tweet had apparently referred to her as being a Karen. And I only saw the reply of somebody saying, how dare you call a black woman a Karen? But there is this element of like, in any of these situations, whoever calls the authorities, we're in this kind of like the post 2020 you know, ACAB, all caps are bastards type, you know, defund the police type thinking, even if you're not talking about super left-wing sociologists whose thing is being against policing, you know, anybody who's called the authorities becomes very quickly the villain, whether or not that's fair. So what's clear to me, I should just say, like, what's clear to me that did happen from this, from the accounts, if I had to, like, guess what happened is that he was just super annoying because then you get a lot of other people saying oh he did this at this conference too he did this at that conference too where he's just one of these people you know I've had this at talks I've given where there's somebody in the audience who just cannot leave it alone and just wants to hear themselves talk which you know as I hold forth on this podcast could you imagine somebody talking (laughs) and letting the letting people hear them talk and being like and just holding forth whether or not anybody could care less. But um, so there's that. But what I don't know and what remains a mystery to me is whether he was in any way intimidating, frightening, or just annoying. Because I think to call security, like I've never heard of somebody like calling, having, having to call security because somebody's just being like annoying at a conference, you know? And that's where I almost wonder, like, was it that he just has the sort of look of a, gangster and you know was security called for that reason you know like that's where i'm um wondering about this that is a really good question so when you were there at this sociology conference in los angeles that i'm sure you were attending yeah i was there under deep cover i too am a detective if this were a detective show there would be cctv and literally somebody in one of the tweets about this was like there's always some sort of film of these things and if they're if the people defending this professor aren't like the woman who's giving the talk are not sharing it that's for reasons (laughs) it's like but now i am i'm like if i had actually like the time today to do this i would be trying to find some sort of footage of this talk because like that's what we're all waiting for, right? Like what actually happened? Because white adjacent bully, whatever, you know, like his whole thing about like his background and his positionality, whatever. I want to know what actually happened and how the musical number went. Well, And, you know, my story, my crime novel that I'm going to write based on this event, the CCTV footage reveals the antagonist and antagony both backstage in flagrante after the dance-off because they're secretly in love of course they are there i i think that's that's the way love is the answer i love a happy ending yeah well that's sweet and uh speaking of happy endings i think we've (laughs) yes 
<laughs> a good place to stop. Sounds good. <laughs> oh, is this a public episode? Right, right. Oh, so then please subscribe to Feminine Chaos on Substack. And then you could listen to um, extra episodes early to the public episodes. And we will have an upcoming members only, subscribers only episode with an Ask Me Anything type segment where we are gathering many of your topic suggestions. I'm going to do kind of a quick fire response to those. Yeah, it's going to be really exciting. And you can find us at femchaospod.substack.com. Thank you for listening. And this has been Feminine Chaos. That definitely has. Goodbye. Bye.